Welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining. I'm Frank here with Byron. And Byron, once again, we're back in season two. We're, uh, you know, just getting into things. Of course, this new administration has a ton of news for us to put out each and every week. Uh, before we get into everything, let the listeners know, especially the new listeners, what we're going to talk about today. All right. Well, welcome, new listeners. If you're out there, uh, we basically break down news and politics each week, uh, try to tell you what's important and things that you should know. Uh, we're going to be talking a little uh, Khalif Browder later on in the show. We got Quentin Brooker on as a guest. And we're also going to discuss some interracial uh, dating later on. Before we get into that, we always like to start off with something non-political. And I actually have a question for you, Frank. Do you consider yourself a good, bad, or a no tipper at all? Are you a good tipper, a bad tipper, or do you uh, not even tip at all? You just pay your bill and uh, draw a line through the tip line and, and keep it moving. Which, what kind of tipper are you? I'm a, I'm a good tipper. I'm probably in the in the 99th percentile uh, for the most part. 20% most places um, poor service even gets maybe 10%. Very rarely do I not tip. I would more than likely call the manager out and ex- express my displeasure rather than not leaving a tip because sometimes not leaving a tip, it doesn't to me send the message that I want to be sent, which is I receive poor service and sometimes going and speaking to the manager would would be more effective. Obviously, it feels good maybe to withhold um, that dollar or two or you know five, ten dollars, whatever the tip might be. But I feel like my best um, thing would be to talk to the manager. So I'm a pretty good tipper. I believe in tipping uh, 15 to 20 percent. Most of the time I do 20 percent. And but I, here's one here's one catch. I tip only on the subtotal. I know a lot of times they'll give you the at the suggested tip, and it's based on the total with tax. There's no point to tip on tax because uh, taxes are something that businesses collect, and it's required of them uh, by state, generally by state uh, law. So there's no reason to tip on the taxes they they have to charge you on whatever the services. Just tip on the subtotal. Uh, Dwight Ladd, we've had him on the show last season of Ladd uh, Photography down in Mobile, Alabama. He commented on a post and said that he's a, a I think he said he tips like up to 40 percent. And one of the reason he, reasons that he does that is because he feels like black people in particular have this uh stigma that they don't tip and so he overcompensates and try to make up for I guess you know the black people out there that don't tip and he tries to make sure he tips big no matter what the service is I don't subscribe to that I'm not I'm not uh I'm not gonna buy into that uh I guess stereotype or whatever if that's what they think that's that's what they think but I do tip uh, I do tip uh, according to how the service is you know if the service is great I'll go above and beyond with my tip if it's mediocre or poor, I'm like you. I'll either either get the manager or I'll show it in my tip. It'll be a very low tip. Uh, so my other question for you is, do you feel do you feel any pressure to kind of overcompensate like Dwight Ladd uh, stated as far as uh, when it comes to tipping? I don't feel the pressure. I mean, I've often thought of it like, hmm, they're going to be like open this up. And I wonder, do they think? Uh, oh wow, this is good. Or if, if it's, or maybe they've had a good experience with other African Americans, other Black people. They don't really care. Uh, personally, for me, I just do what I can. I never try to overcompensate. 
Uh, you know, there's been times when I may have given a couple extra dollars to another African-American server who I thought did a really good job as, well, as almost a nod to another brother, you know, or sister in the field doing their thing, but never just trying to compensate as a whole for the race in general. That's just something that is not going to be able to be done. Uh, certainly, even if you tip 30, 40, 50 percent, I mean, there's so many people that are bad tippers regardless of race. There's no need to try to compensate for it. That's just my opinion. <laughs> Gotcha, man. In a in a completely unrelated topic, I do want to say uh, rest in peace to Chuck Berry. He uh, as we record today, he uh, died today, 90 years old, rock and roll legend. So rest in peace to him. With that said, let's get into some politics. Listening to politically entertaining your Cliff's notes to American politics, and now your host, poli- Frank politically entertaining. We ask that you subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, as well as uh, Google Podcasts. Uh, so check us out, subscribe, and you'll get the new episodes directly to your device. As I stated earlier, we got Quentin Brooker coming up, and we'll also discuss. Uh, you know, our opinions on interracial dating, there's a post on social media that brought that topic up. Before we get into all that, the top story, the Trump uh, budget, the White House released their budget proposal last week. And some key points in the Frank that stood out to me, there are cuts uh, to education. Uh, I believe it gets rid of altogether Meals on Wheels or there's like a huge cut to that program. Uh, state, the, the Department of State funding has been cut. Department of HUD has been cut. The EPA has been cut. It's been cut to the point to where if this budget goes through, it's going to cost the EPA 3,200 jobs, you know, and that they're not that important. They're just responsible for the water that we drink being safe and the air that we breathe being safe. Um, It does include $2.6 billion to build that wall on the Mexican border. Uh, You know, the wall that he said Mexico would pay for for months and months and months at a time. And now I guess we're going to pay for it and wait for them to reimburse us. Um, Senator Graham, Republican from South Carolina, has said that this budget proposal is dead on arrival. Frank, what stood out in this budget and where do you stand as far as uh, with Graham? Do you think it should be dead on arrival or do you like this new budget proposal? I mean, I don't like anything about the budget. I mean, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, but I think it should be dead on arrival. Am I surprised? No. I mean, the thing is, here's the thing about Donald Trump. He's doing everything that he said he was going to do. And I know that's a, a, maybe a departure from the politics that we're used to. But he's saying he's, he's, he's pushing, you know, uh, a big military trying to defeat ISIS. Uh, he's pushing a wall trying to keep out immigrants, as he as he says. So, you know, he's he's cutting the funding to the light, you know. It's funny how he's cutting the funding to the, the people at the end of their life and people at the beginning of their lives. The, the programs, the things he's affecting, education, Meals on Wheels, uh, public television, things like that, those are things that we need for our youth and then also you know our, our elderly people as well. So 
it's almost as if the system is being set up now to, to kill those who are elderly and to ensure that those who are young don't make it too far along and the ones that do make it it's almost like you're you're whittling them down through a process where only the fittest survive so to speak i know it sounds kind of crazy to think about it that way but if you look at it that way that's what it's doing if you're not in prime health and prime economic position this budget has a negative effect on you and so i just think that the idea that it's you know Helping anybody is is a lie. I mean, other than people who maybe are involved in military, you know, contracting and things like that, or defense spending, or those companies will be obviously benefiting from a budget like this. Uh, but the but the average American, certainly the the middle class, lower to middle class American, is going to be hurting uh, on a, with a budget like this. And then and, and as a bigger follow on, it's impacting our children. And as you know, as being a father and both of us being parents. If we can't protect the next generation and have them come up in a safe environment, what are we even here for? What are we even doing? You you mentioned that the budget doesn't have any surprises. One thing that did uh, kind of stand out to me as far as he promised, you know, 10,000 new Border Patrol agents. This budget only allows for a thousand. And he also promised a certain amount of uh, new ICE uh, agents. And that is only going to hire about 10 percent of his proposed number that he put out there when he was uh, campaigning. So, you know, we'll see what happens. If you have Republicans already saying that it's no good, then this probably won't be the budget that goes through. But this budget has Steve Bannon, his uh, chief political strategist. It has his name written all over it, man. So it's going to be interesting to see what the final uh, budget is. Before we uh, talk to Quinn and Brooker, I... Uh, Wanted to discuss uh, Khalif Browder. Do you do you are you familiar with Khalif Browder? Or have you watched his uh, documentary that's on Spike TV at the moment? So I have not watched his documentary, but I am familiar with his story. And I'm actually I actually was part of uh, Sean King. He had the, the boycott and justice boycott. And I was actually a part of that. And one of the big things that he was pushing was to raise the age. And one of those things that raise the age is to not allow these teenagers to end up going to Rikers, which is basically um, not even a prison really fit for animals, but you're putting these young boys in there and it, it can ruin them. So part of the Raise the Age campaign, and if you want to know more about it, you can go to Raise, RaiseTheAgeNY.com and you can support the movement there. And, you know, there's different ways you can support it. And it has gotten some traction. I think there is a movement uh, politically, not just socially, to change and raise the age, realizing that putting these young boys uh, or putting young boys in uh, a prison like Rikers is just doesn't make any sense. It's not going to rehabilitate them at all. That's some great information you just put out there. And, uh, you know, his name has been on the tongue of politicians on both sides, from Rand Paul to uh, Barack Obama. But for those of you that are not familiar with his story, as Frank mentioned, the whole race, the age thing, he was only 16 years old. He was accused of stealing a book bag. Uh, he was locked up in Rikers Island. Now, he was locked up despite the fact that this witness that said he stole his backpack uh, changed his story several times. Uh, so he wound up going to Rikers Island. His mom, you know, couldn't afford to pay the bail right away. By the time she got the bail money, uh, they came up with some other reason. But what other reason where he can be uh, released? What stands out in this story with, with Khalif, though, is the games that the prosecution plays. So every time his trial will come up, they will say, we're not ready. We're not ready. And which means he had to stay locked up. He had a difficult time 
just imagine a 16 year old kid. It's a little kid too. He's like five, five, 135 pounds or something like that. And there was grown, hardened criminals. And it, the documentary just shows, you know, the, the, the tough time that he had in there, what he went through, uh, how he was in uh, solitary confinement for like, uh, I want to say over a year. The UN defines torture as uh, anything more than 15 days straight in solitary confinement. This kid spent over 100 days straight in solitary confinement. And so by the time he was released, he wound up uh, committing suicide. And the documentary just really it does a pretty good job of breaking down everything he went through and how this justice system. You always hear how imperfect the justice system is. But this, you know, really puts it in front of you and shows you what can happen. And uh, I actually want to talk to Quentin Brooker a little bit about it in a moment. And we'll probably dive into it some more. But for those of you that haven't, it's on Spike TV, I believe, every Wednesday. It's called Time, Khalif Browder. Check it out. And, uh, you know, the, the information that Frank put out there, go on that website as well and um, support that cause because, there's no reason for young men, young boys, rather, to go to that prison. And, and like Frank said, like you said, it's not even fit for animals. Some of those uh, cells have feces on the wall and, and things like that. Man, it's it's really crazy. So so check that out. Um, before I forget, before we talk to uh, Quentin Brooker, before I forget, um I just want to thank everybody real quick for your support. Uh, we mentioned uh, Black Awakenings last week and how you can purchase uh, cool shirts like Rosa Parks with the word nah. Uh, it has new Martin Luther King shirts on there what, shirts on there as well. And we told you about our discount code. If you use Byron and Frank on Black Awakenings, uh, you can get shirts, sweatshirts, whatever your order is, you can get 10% off. So visit blackawakenings.com. Go to their store. Uh, check out the shirts. They're great. Uh, you really like them. And also, Frank and I, we have our own tab on the menu as well. So you can click on Byron and Frank and check out our writings that we will be posting on there each week. So check that out. I thank you guys. We have a lot of people that have already purchased the shirt. And Frank and I are very grateful for that. Um, with that, let's uh, let's talk to Quinn and Brooker. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. I would guess today we had him on last season. Uh, he is an attorney at law. He's the host of QB Law TV. We call him QB on the show. Quentin Brooker, what's going on, brother? Man, glad to be back. Thank you, guys. Frank hey, man, and Byron, I'm uh, ready to go. Yeah, we. I'm, I'm happy to have you back, man. I've been waiting to talk to you, man. Uh, my first question for you, uh, I just mentioned QB Law TV. Uh, what the hell happened to the first episode, man? Uh, what, what did Facebook do with your first episode, yo? You know, man, uh, there's a theory going on um, with the QB Law TV audience that Facebook doesn't want me to publicize. But I'm going to tell you, I think it's, it's less insidious than that. I just think that they don't like the fact that I use certain music, certain musicians, um, I've actually finally received a message from them that, hey, some of the music that you're using may not be, uh, you may not have permission to use it. And so um, I thought about that and I, I went through the legal analysis and I'm like, you know, I, I don't know if I fall into that category. Um, so I've had some back and forth with them since then. 
sometimes they let me they let me go ahead and publish, and sometimes I have issues for a few days, and then the show will pop up somewhere later. Um, but yeah, episode one is still a mystery. I, I don't know where it is. <laughs> Hopefully, at some point it'll come back, and I'll be able to go ahead and send it to YouTube. Man, it's a it's a great show, and, and for those that that don't follow, basically, QB had a show ready to go, and um, it, it just disappeared. But I will say, Facebook had they seem to be cracking down on that. I see a lot of people that try to uh, post videos with music playing, and it gets removed. So maybe that's something that uh, Facebook decided to crack down on. But um, as you know, I'm sure you paid attention to. Uh, our new attorney general, uh, Jeff Sessions, and his whole confirmation oh, hearings yeah. and stuff. Uh, I consider you the law expert for our show. In your opinion, did Jeff Sessions, did he perjure himself with the whole Russia question that uh, Al Franken asked him? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, perjury is, is simply lying under oath. And um, being involved in a confirmation hearing, you are sworn to tell the truth. Um, he definitely misrepresented uh, the facts and only really cleaned it up after the facts were presented to him uh, later on. And so there's no doubt about it that he perjured himself. Um, I'm curious to see how that's going to pan out, although I think I already know how it's going to conclude. Um, but there's no question about it, man. This guy, he, he was clear, at least to me, um, and, you know, uh, Senator Franken was very direct in the in the uh, questioning. Um, so I don't see any, any there's no ambiguity there. He definitely lied under oath, but I do not believe there'll be any consequences. Yeah, QB, this is Frank. I'm going to jump in here and ask you another question. I'm sure you've seen uh, the, the budget, uh, some of the, uh, the initial budget proposals and how many cuts have gone on. And one of the things that I've seen being cut are a lot of um, how would you say services to rural areas that may have voted for Donald Trump in, say, a Rust Belt or a Bible Belt? Do you think is there any point in your mind that you think that people that voted for Trump are going to realize they've been had or will they still uh, continue to vote against their interests in the future elections? So so what we have is a 54 billion dollar increase for the military. And many, many, many social services being cut. I actually talked about this on the show uh, last week, whereas, you know, you have programs like WIC, uh, which is, you know, uh, funding for food for, for mothers with, with, with babies, with small children. You have a decrease in uh, Meals on Wheels, which is a very popular program that feeds our elderly. Um, LIHEAP, which is another program that keeps our our elderly and our people with less resources keeps their homes heated and cooled. All of these things are, are, are being cut dramatically. And there's a, there's actually also a college grant is eliminated. Um, so, you know, these are monies for college and the numbers actually came out a couple of weeks ago, two thirds of all community college students in this country don't have enough to eat and 14% of them are homeless which is which is amazing to me. So uh, are they going to you know realize that they did something that they should not have done? Sure. I think I think some of them are already feeling it. They're going to definitely feel it more so over over the next 18 to 24 months. But is it going to matter to them? No, it's not going to matter. Because you know, my my belief is that these people didn't vote for Trump because they expected him to necessarily change their lives. 
they voted for him because he used rhetoric. He used language that spoke what they wanted to hear. They want uh, their guy in office. Many of these people, they, you know, the, the idea of a black man in office was just so, it was uh, such, a, such a, a difficult idea for them to grasp, and it actually speaks to a lot of their fears, and it, it speaks to a lot of their biases. So when you have a guy now come up and, 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 and run his entire campaign speaking their language, you know, it doesn't matter what he was saying. I mean, we heard the things he said. We knew that most of it was, was untrue when he was saying anything substantive at all. I mean, when he actually did speak policy, which was very rare on the campaign trail, but when he did that, it didn't speak to the betterment of all Americans, but he, he used dog whistle terminology. He used uh, uh, really bigoted terminology that was, that was veiled in such a way that it could be considered politically correct. But he spoke directly to these people's fears and their, and their desires for how they want America to look. And so it wasn't about the policies. I mean, we, we all knew that most people, and what I've learned is that when most people vote, they don't vote intelligently. They vote based on how they were raised. They vote based on how their friends vote, how their parents uh, voted, and they vote based on their biases. So to me, are they going to realize it? Sure. And they're going to feel it. I mean, when you see how many cuts um, across the board, how many people that affect nonprofits are going to be affected in a tremendous way, nonprofits that produce services, actual services for people. And so they're going to feel it, but it's not going to matter. So you mentioned uh, one of the things you mentioned about college students being hungry and, and college funding being cut. Uh, you know, over the over the past, I'd say maybe 25, 30 years, you've seen a dramatic rise in, in cost of tuition, uh, almost in a for-profit college format, and the salaries at these jobs are supposed to um, the salary tuition don't quite match the jobs that people are getting. Do you feel like now we're going to see a shift in the way we're approaching college? Whereas I know that, especially in the black community, it's been like you need to go, you know, graduate high school, go to college, get that degree, and then you'll get a job. Is there going to be a different mindset being taught? And, or, and, and the question to you, because I know you mentor a lot of young men, do you, are you uh, also changing your mindset of, hey, you need to go to college? no matter what, or is there a different path people need to take with potentially uh, the, the amount of student loans people might have to take on to go to college versus the actual salary they'll have to pay those loans off when they graduate? I think that's a, that's a really interesting issue. Um, one thing that I do know is that fewer people will be um, in position to, to complete a traditional college degree. We know that just based on the policies that are being rolled out and presented to us. People just aren't going to have the resources to go. Um, especially people of low and even uh, many middle income people aren't going to be able to afford college. As you spoke, college, the, the cost of college is increasing yearly. And, uh, you know, although salaries and, and incomes are increasing slightly, particularly for blacks, uh, we're still at the bottom. And I, I produce those numbers, you know, almost every week to, to show that. Um, but I think you bring a, another really important issue is, are we going to have the foresight to do other things? Um, are we going to change our mindset to say, hey, perhaps we need to focus more on uh, a trade, or perhaps we need to focus more on entrepreneurship right out of high school? Um, are those things that we are going to uh, have to do? I think some of us will have to do that. You know, some of us, of, of us will go and get a license uh, to, to, to cut hair or to do hair. 
or to pr- provide services for our communities. But I think that this, uh, this machine, uh, this educational machine, this thing is going so fast and so hard, and it's been going, you know, since the inception, you know, of our HBCUs. Uh, this machine that tells us this is what you're supposed to do. You are, if you're in position, you are supposed to go to school, and this is what you are supposed to learn. And when you get out, you are supposed to work for someone or work for the government or teach this curriculum that we want you to teach or do this job that we want you to do. That machine is so powerful that I don't see the mindsets changing so much as our actions changing out of necessity. Because the reality is, even for myself, I went to school, I'm from Philadelphia, I went to school in Florida, and it was a struggle. I mean, it was a downright challenge, man. I mean, we didn't have money like that. I didn't have a car when I was in in college. Um, I barely made it out. And so for someone like me that had all of the ability and the support that I could get from home, it still was, like, really difficult for me to finish uh, college. Um, you know, I had multiple jobs, and my mom was helping me to the best of her ability and that sort of thing. I had people in my family sending me money just to get through. So I think there will be a change in what we do and how we approach higher education, but it's not because our mindset is telling us to do something else. I, I think it will be out of necessity. We are talking to defense attorney Quinnen Brooker. Uh, we love having him on. Quinnen, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Dwayne Buck. Uh, the yeah. Supreme Supreme Court last month ruled six to two, uh, two dissenters, Thomas being one of them. No surprise there. Uh, they ruled for it to for his case to be sent back to the lower court for a new sentencing hearing. The reason is in his original trial, it was said that he was more likely to be dangerous because he was black. And so he was sentenced to death. Uh from part of that analysis, he's uh, guilty of uh, murdering his ex-girlfriend and her friend. Uh, my question to you is, what do you say to people who who hear that information? They hear this case and they say, OK, so during this trial, they say that he may be more dangerous because he's black. Why should that matter if he's guilty? How would you respond to someone that uh, that questions that? Well, um I don't know if you guys are aware, but this case actually occurred, the, the underlying case occurred here in Houston. Um, I know the defense attorney. I'm not, you know, I'm not friends with him or anything. He's a 70-plus-year-old 70, 70 man. But this mm-hmm. is a guy that I see around um, a lot. He knows me. Um, I don't think I've ever seen him in trial, but he's one of those guys that he's been around so long that most of the lawyers would say, you know, he's a good lawyer. Um, I, I did not look up what, what court, because we have 22, 22 felony courts here, which we have obviously the largest court system in Texas. And also, we send more people to death row than any other county in, in this country. Um, so it's a machine down here in Harris County, Texas. But um, I don't know exactly what court he was in. I don't know who the judge was. In fact, in 97, I was still in college when he was convicted. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, it's really, really interesting. You, you bring up a good point, and it's kind of, similar to the point that I talked about when I was on last time about, you know, why, why do we do this work? Uh, you know, it's more from a moral standpoint than a legal standpoint. The, the law here in Texas is when you're dealing with capital cases, um, first of all, in all felony cases, and really in misdemeanor cases too, it, we have a bifurcated system. So we have a punishment phase 
that that follows the guilt innocent phase. So obviously, if you win, if you get a not guilty, there's no punishment phase. But if you lose, there's a separate trial just on punishment, and, mm-hmm. and that's really that's really in the protect for the protection of the defendant. I like it because there are going to be certain things that the jury will not be able to hear. Okay, they won't be able to hear certain things during the guilt innocent phase. That's a good thing for defendants or anyone accused of a crime because there are some things that a jury may hear that will prejudice them in the outcome of the case. So, you know, why should you hear what my criminal history is during this case? You know, you charge me for theft uh, in this case. I need to be heard on this case. Don't, you know, don't judge me based on what I did five years ago because that has nothing to do with this case. Now, some people morally may think they're relevant, and it, it is relevant, but it's not admissible because it will prejudice the jury. Because many people, most people, even myself, will go into it and say, you know what, I think this person is guilty now because of what this person did 65 months ago, and that's not right. fair. So, so we have this bifurcated system, and I think it's a good thing. And, and one of the extra protections for a death penalty case in Texas is that information is presented to the jury that acts to mitigate the crime. Now, I believe in this case, I, I know at least two people were murdered, and the third person, I believe, was shot uh, in the case of Dwayne Buck. So we've heard all of the bad stuff about Dwayne Buck. And remember, at this point, the jury has already convicted him. He is right. guilty. The question is just whether or not he's going to live. So they've heard the bad stuff. So Texas says, you know what, we're going to give you an opportunity to mitigate the damage that has been done, at least in terms of the jury hearing what happened, by presenting good things about the defendant. And, and maybe not just good things, but tell us about his life. Why did he do this? Does he have a, a psychological issues? Um, what was his upbringing like? Was he abused? Those sorts of things. Very, very important for a jury to determine whether a person lives or dies. And the legal standard in this case, one of the legal standards are, is this person likely to do it again? That is a critical question. Because here's the thing. Okay, so if we kill him, he obviously can't do it again. But maybe we decide, you know what, we're going to sentence him to the degree that he may be able to get out in 50 years. Depending on how old that person is, it may matter. Or maybe we say, you know what, uh, we're not going to give him just automatic life sentence. We're going to go ahead and give him eh, 40 years, and then, you know, with our law, the way it works, you're eligible for parole at a certain point. So if they get out, is there going to be a possibility that they'll do it again? That is critical. And that's really why it matters how the information is presented. Because in this case, the psychologist, I believe his name is Dr. Keanu. Dr. Keanu presented information to the jury that a black person is likely to reoffend. A black person is likely to reoffend. It, 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 it certainly was uh, shocking to hear that from an expert uh, witness. Frank, Frank and I, um, I'm going to get you out of here with this last question. Frank and I, we discussed, uh, I'm sure you're aware of Khalif Browder and his story. And we, we discussed yeah. him earlier earlier in the show. Um, I, w- I wanted to I wanted to ask you this. It's a it's a two part question actually. Sure. Uh, I don't know how well you followed his case, but 
if you haven't, the prosecution played a lot of games with, with him. And every time his trial came up, they wasn't ready. They couldn't find the witness, things like that. Do you, ha- as a defense attorney, do you have any examples of the prosecution playing games? And my second question is this, because a lot of people are pointing to, you know, this is another example of racism in our justice system, justice system to lock up a 16 year old over a stolen backpack. My question to you is, can we can we really point to racism when there were so many black faces on this uh, in this particular case, as far as like the 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 the, the union president for the uh, the correction officers in Rikers Island is, is black. Uh a lot of the black, a lot of the correction officers themselves that dealt with and, and you know, abused Khalif Browder were black. So is it is it just simple as racism or is it like a bigger pit, a bigger issue going on when it comes to that? So, again, do you have any example, any examples of prosecutions playing those type of games? And can we just look at it as being racism in our justice system? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely know of prosecutors doing things that they shouldn't do to try to gain an advantage. Um, but I do want to suggest to you, we are not clear. Now, I did see all of the resets that were done as a result of whatever, uh, you know, witness not being available, prosecutor in trial, you know, so on and so forth. Do prosecutors play games? Yes, they do. And so do defense attorneys from time to time. Um, mm-hmm. I have an example of a case. It actually was my one of my good buddies' case. I was second chair on it, where they swore up and down that they had a, a – <laughs> a witness in Dallas and that she was going to come to Houston. Now Dallas is a four hour drive from here. Okay. But you know, this, this witness was going to come to Houston and she was going to testify against our client. And so we were preparing for her. Um, but it got funny because, you know, we tried to contact her. We couldn't and all of this and all of that trial week comes up first day. It's like, Oh, she's not here yet. We got to get her a plane. Next day. It's like, Oh, well, she, something happened with the plane. Now we got to send a, a deputy to go get her. Finally, the third or fourth day, they dismissed the case. Now, they had offered my client seven years, seven years. And so they were like, well, if we go to trial, we're going to ask for 25 years, so you better take this seven. And so luckily, my, you know, my good friend and colleague, he was, he was steadfast enough to reject the deal and say, no, we're going to go to trial. But his client wanted the seven. He wanted that seven years because, you know, after three and a half years, he's eligible to get out. He didn't want to risk getting 25. He was afraid. But, you know, thank God that he stuck with his guns and he said, no, I'm not going to take it. So he wound up getting his case dismissed. Now, that prosecutor, we, we never believed that they had this witness. We never believed it. We always knew that she was, uh, she was lying. Um, interestingly, with the new DA uh, being hired this year, she actually was one of the 52 prosecutors fired. So, it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, we do see that. We do see that. But I'm not going so far to say that the, the issue in, in Khalif Browder's case was the result of prosecutors playing games? Because I just don't know. I mean, you you literally, as a prosecutor, they have so many cases. There's, and New York is a huge criminal system. I mean, they have night court and all types of stuff going on. I mean, it, it's just a really big system. So we don't know for sure that that's the case. We don't know if it was the same prosecutor over the course of those three, or, three, three years. Could have been a different prosecutor. So, I mean, I, I hate to sound like I'm defending them, but I'm not really being fair to them. If I don't know now, you if you had one prosecutor and he literally was doing funny things, well, that's something else. But we just don't know in this case. Um, in, in respect to racism, the racism question, man, I'm just going to direct you to the numbers, like I always do. The question of whether or not the criminal justice system in New York is racist. Look at the number of blacks that are currently incarcerated 
Look at the, 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 the jail sentences that they received as compared to other races. And you tell me. But you also have to include in there the percentage of blacks in that, in that area. The numbers will tell you whether it's racist or not, because it's people that make these choices. It's people that do the arrests or the stops and frisks that lead to the arrests, that lead to the charges, that lead to the indictments, that lead to the trials, that lead to the convictions and the punishments. Those are people. And so when you have a, a lower percentage of blacks, but a higher percentage of incarceration, a higher percentage of sentencing, it's inherently racist. And I'll leave you with this. How can it be because black people are involved in that process? Just because a person is black does not mean that that person does not propagate racist thought and racist ideology. Mm -hmm. A black person, although a black person cannot, quote, unquote, be racist, because in my opinion, they need to exert some kind of authority or power over people collectively, not just one judge, one police officer, one lawyer. Collectively, they need to be able to exert power. But a black person can absolutely propagate racist ideology. And I'll lead you to, to a book. Um, a gentleman, uh, Dr. Uh, Ibram Kendi, wrote a book. Stand from the beginning. Read the book, guys. Um, in fact, he believe he's a graduate of FAMU. He currently teaches at, uh, at the University of Florida. He's a professor there. Um, he, I think he got his PhD from Temple in Philly. Excellent book, and it talks about racist thought and how black people, and you'd be surprised how many blacks in the history of our, really of the civil rights era, how many of us have propagated racist theory and racist ideology, racist thought, racist statements that have hurt us as a people? So it doesn't surprise me that there were a lot of black people involved uh, in the Khalif Browder case. It doesn't surprise me when I see these these sheriffs that get on and, and sound like, you know, whatever, coons, Uncle Tom. It doesn't surprise <laughs> me. They are propagating racist ideology and racist thought because that's what they believe. They're part of the system like we are. So it doesn't surprise me at all. It's possible. Um, certainly, I think that's the case up there in New York. It's a broken system. Anytime a young man could be in this situation, there are some facts about his case that, I was unaware of until I read into it that that added to his situation. Um, but certainly he should have never, you know, that what happened to him was so egregious and so unbelievably unfair. Um, it, you know, it actually led to him killing himself. Um, right. and, and that's something that should never happen. Yeah, man. Uh, I appreciate the, the nuanced thought on that, on how uh, we don't necessarily know that the prosecution was playing games. Uh, I certainly, feel like I can draw that conclusion, but I do like that you brought that up that, hey, it may not even been the same uh, prosecutor. Uh, Quentin Brooker, attorney at law. Go like his Facebook page, uh, QB Law. He also has an app. Uh, that's where he's going to be posting uh, QB Law TV episodes from now on on his uh, professional page of uh, QB Law. So check that out on Facebook. Hey, man, I know you're going to come see this uh, the African American uh, Museum here in D.C. soon. So Whenever you come out here, you make sure you hit me up, man, in D.C. I definitely will. If I can get a ticket, I understand it's a long wait. But, um, man, certainly I, I can't wait to get there. My wife is actually in Philly right now. And um, so, you know, we often go home. And, I, you know, the intent would be to swing down there. And, and definitely I'll reach out to you, man. Hey, I appreciate it. Do that, man. We appreciate you coming on. And uh, always a pleasure talking to you, brother. Same here, man. Y'all take it easy. I just want to say this about uh, QB, Quentin Brooker. We uh, we call him QB on the show. Uh, while most of black America was sad after the election, Frank, uh, QB was one of the first people to call me like the day after the uh, election. And he, he wasn't sad at all. He pretty much said, you know, 
he broke it down this way. He said, would you rather someone sneak up behind you and stab you in the back? Or would you rather they uh, approach you face to face and tell you what they're going to do and give you an opportunity to fight back? And that was the analogy. I mean, many of you know, if you listen to the last season with Quentin Brooker, how he feels about voting. But that's the analogy he used with Hillary and Clinton, that Hillary, in his opinion, was going to be just as bad as Trump. It just would have been harder to see. At least with Trump, he's in your face and you get to see he tells you exactly what he's going to do. So we like having him on. And, and thank you for coming on again, QB. Um, I don't know if you saw this post, Frank, but there is a, uh, a post on social media last week. And there's a, a Redskins player by the name of Lyndon. I think his name is Lyndon Trail. He's a linebacker. And he pretty much posted a question on, you know, why do black athletes with money marry white women? And just in case there are people in the audience that haven't heard or read this post, I want to read it to you, Frank. And I want to get your <laughs> I want to get your reaction to this. So. Again, Lyndon Trail, he posted a question, why do black athletes marry white women? And somebody responded. And before I read this response, it's important to know that this guy posed as a Miami Dolphins player that responded. He's really not a Miami Dolphins player, but it just it brought this larger question that I'm going to ask you, Frank. But this was the response that had a lot of people talking. The answer is simple, brother. Most of the sisters were raised in broken homes and they don't have proper guidance to how they should treat a man. So they mess up a lot in relationships. The biggest difference is a white woman knows her position and accepts her role as a woman and let her man lead. Black women believe it's 50-50 and you have to be uneducated to ever think such a thing. Black women are stubborn, close-minded, and always want to argue and be the boss. Men don't like that bleep. Especially if you're successful young black athletes, you're looking for a woman to submit do their part and handle their business. Men need men. It's a lot of broken English in here. I, I cleaned up most of it, but he says men needs peace of mind and you don't get that with black women. So I guess two part question for you. What is your response to that ignorance? And uh, what is your overall view on, on interracial dating? Because I know some people, the, the the answers vary vastly. So where, where you stand on that and what is your response to that post? So there's a lot of ways I can answer it. Um, and I'll answer the most, the easiest low hanging fruit first, which is, I mean, that the typical response to whoever this guy was, um, that's just a very cliche response. And it's part of the label that black women, unfortunately, have to have have to fight against. Um, but, you know, all any woman can be combative or anything like that. I think the black women are getting, getting unfair label at times. And, you know, from a standpoint of these 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 African-American men, these black athletes, whatever you want to say, why they're choosing white women. I mean, some of them might choose it because there there's also I mean, if we go back in time there, there's there's a lot of things going back to slavery of, you know, how the, the white slave master was able to rape. The black woman, you know, think about think about it like this. It's it, there's things that get passed down generationally. I don't want to get into a generational cursing, but if you take it from a standpoint of the white man was able to come to bring you to this country, rape your daughters, rape your wife, 
maybe there's something down in some in some of these guys just they don't even know it and they feel like maybe getting a white woman getting a white woman is getting making to the top is showing that they can they can really make it they can have a white woman they can have the untouchable fruit because I guarantee you that if a slave touched or even looked at a at a white master's wife he was dead so I think there's some of that I know that's kind of a weird thing and it's uncomfortable but hey it's our show we can say whatever we want right <laughs> so there's that and and that's you know one thing but I think part of it's also um you, you know it's a it's a class thing too you know sometimes and this is not a negative thing but let's say you're a a, a um a black man and you grow up in a certain type of neighborhood and it's a poor neighborhood and you grow up with certain kind of women and they have a certain type of presentation and it's not their fault it's just their presentation it has nothing to do with even that guy's response but then you get a little bit of money you start going to different kind of parties you start meeting women that have a little different package they're presenting presenting things differently and you're not used to it and you're like oh this is different but i can tell you for a fact that you know and i've dated interracially all women are the same from the standpoint if relationship has cracks in the foundation it doesn't matter you know how it starts how it begins it's going to end badly and so there's no band-aid there's no magic cure-all so there's no magic woman out there that's like well these women are better than this other women it's all about the woman that's best for you that's not even to say going to answer the other question what do i think about interracial dating i don't think there's anything wrong with it on its face i think that you could meet somebody from another race and really be vibing with them on all things and y'all could totally be cool and there's nothing wrong with that I just think that if you try to make paint a broad brush of why black athletes date white women without looking at several different reasons you're going to miss the point some people do it because of what I mentioned at first maybe the uncomfortable topic some people do it because they may have never run into a white woman and they get caught up like oh this is different you know and then they get and they get excited by the newness of it and 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 some guys just meet a white woman and they really hit hit it off and they're like you know what she's cool or maybe you know they were dating i mean you look at somebody russell wilson who actually went the other way right he was dating a white woman that was his girl through college they broke up got divorced now it's with sierra who is definitely uh she's black for for for, you know don't don't be there's no question about that so it's just like i just think that it's a thing that's an easy target to look at and say oh when you get money uh black men get money they go to white women but I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think there are some of those things that I brought up that are part of it. But you have to look at each case individually and see how the man met the woman to really kind of maybe try to understand how it happened. But for me, I have enough issues in my life. I can care less about who's married, and who's dating, too. I'm just trying to make sure that my relationship is good. And so I look at it like that, like when, when people are on Facebook worried about who's dating who or who's dating what and making, you know, ideas or making to me that's a mistake because you need to make sure your own uh, closet is clean that would be my my advice to anybody looking at that too closely a few things you actually touched on without us ever even discussing this before you touched on a similar thought that i have and you know we're largely segregated and a lot of these black athletes you know they come from uh poor communities where they're around pretty much majority black people. And my thought has always, well, I've at least wondered, you know, with their newfound money and wealth, they're they're in more places with a more diverse crowd and they're meeting, you know, different different types of women. And I think it's that. I think it's some of the other stuff you said as far as just trying something they've never had before in some of their cases. Uh, 
But my, my biggest thing is this, man. It's like, like who you like, but like who you like without putting down black women. Like that's possible. Like if you like, if you like white women, if you like Hispanic women, whatever you like, just like them for whatever reasons you have, but don't put down black women. Don't say I like white women because they do this and black women don't do that. I mean, that that's where I, um, that's what I object to. And I do want to be completely clear on this. Lyndon Trail, who, again, plays for the Redskins, he's a linebacker. Uh, he posed a question. He posed a question because there was a topic of discussion in uh, a group chat that he was having. But, you know, the response to the question, especially once uh, this guy posing as a Miami Dolphin player responded, it got such hatred that it kind of turned on Lyndon Trail and you had black women asking him, why did you even ask this question? Where do you stand? You must like white women, too. It got so bad that he felt compelled to post a picture of his family uh, with his black wife and black daughter. And, and he kind of had to put that fire out and say, hey, look, I was just putting the question out there. I love me some black women. So it was a whole lot of craziness pretty much created over uh, a, a catfisher, so to speak. So, you know, it, it gave us a topic for the show. But like you say, marry who you want, like who you want, but do it without putting down other people. Uh, before I toss it for, to you to uh, take us out, Frank, I do want to get a little self-involved. Uh, I mentioned Black Awakeness early in the show. Uh, I th- I thanked you all for buying the shirts, but I also want to thank you all for the feedback that um, I've gotten from my article and from Frank's article. As I told you, we're going to be posting new articles on Black Awakenings each week. You can check there every Monday. Uh, like I said, we have our own uh, tab, click on the menu button. There's a Byron and Frank tab on there. You'll see our writings. Frank's uh, The Invitation Game, my article, uh, That's Why I Don't Fool with Black Businesses. They've got some great feedback, man. I want to thank everybody that took the time to read our articles. This is new for me and Frank. We're enjoying it. Uh, we're having fun with our partnership with Black Awakening. So, again, visit that website, blackawakenings.com. Check out our writings. Uh, thank you so much for the positive feedback on those things. And I'll let you take us out, Frank. Yes, again, want to echo my sentiment. Thank you, listeners. We do the show for you. Without without the listeners, without this feedback, we just wouldn't do the show. There's no point. We just want to thank you guys uh, for that. Uh, again, uh, it's blackawakenings.myshopify.com. Go there. Click on the store link. Use the promo code Byron and Frank. Save 10%. That's B-Y-R-O-N-A-N-D-F-R-A-N-K. When you check out, you can save 10%. They're like, like Byron said earlier in the show, there's new shirts. So definitely uh, get, a, get a cool shirt and save uh, 10% as well. We just want to, again, thank all the listeners. Check us out on Google Play, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, and obviously iTunes. We're just excited for what's uh, coming in the second season. Uh, we got a lot of new guests coming on. going to get you excited. So we just want to ask you guys to continue to support us. Continue to recommend the show uh, to three or four friends that may have not heard it, but you may may or may think be interested. Go ahead and let them know and say, hey, listen to Politically Entertaining. It's pretty good. So we definitely appreciate your support. Uh, we'll see you guys soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.